0: Welcome to the community-supported World on Fire podcast. The following is actually a late July 2006 production from the Best of the Left podcast made to mark the beginning of the 2006 hurricane season. This being the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, I felt it was still quite relevant and worth
1: republishing.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, um, I guess it's official. If you had uh, dozed for 24 hours starting Thursday night, you uh, would really have missed all traces of the fact that the United States Army Corps of Engineers, in a 6,000-page report, has officially taken blame, culpability, responsibility, whatever you want to call it, for the flooding of New Orleans. In, In just that many words, or, well, in enough words to fill 6,000 pages, actually. Uh, Catastrophic failure was the uh, phrase used by Lieutenant General Carl Strock of the U.S. Army Corps. Of As I say, if if you were paying attention Thursday night and uh, Friday morning for the Thursday night uh, newscasts and the Friday morning papers, you actually knew this. On the other hand, if you were checking up in the weekly roundups of the big stories, uh, one of which airs on this on many of these stations, uh, or on the Sunday morning yak shows, there was no discussion of that story at all. There was discussions of, uh, oh, the new treasury secretary, that's important. He might uh, decide to stop making pennies. Um, There were discussions about the arrest of 17 guys in Canada who may have been involved in a terrorist plot. There were discussions about uh, Haditha, the uh, alleged massacre in Iraq where United States Marines are alleged to have killed 21, I believe, 21, 22 civilians, including women and children. Just just by contrast, the uh, death toll as a result of the Army Corps of Engineers, catastrophic failure, their words, is uh, well over a thousand American civilians. Just, you know, perspective and all. And speaking of Haditha, there was much discussion on the Sunday morning yak shows about the fact that in the wake of whatever happened at Haditha, and why can't we just, you know, be honest and pronounce it Haditha? Why do we have to do the uh, the lisp like the king of Iraq does? In the wake of whatever happened at Haditha, the uh, military has ordered new kind of crash training or retraining, or recrash retraining, in core warrior values this summer for our troops in Iraq. Which, you know, I'm sure it's fine. A crash course in values is always good. Here, however, from a Canadian report on the uh, Army Corps of Engineers, wea culpa, are a couple of things the uh, US, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers did, even though they assessed themselves no. No taint of malfeasance, you know, they, they were they 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 presided over a catastrophic failure, but they didn't do anything wrong is basically the tone of the report, unlike the reports of other independent investigators who had plenty of blame. Anyway, here's what here's a couple of things the Corps did. In some cases, the stability of the soil beneath flood walls was calculated, calculated on the basis of widely spaced samples and averages that failed to take into account weak spots. And if you just average it out, it's all strong. And some flood wall heights were overestimated by as much as three feet because of poor measurement techniques or failure to allow for known sinking terrain. But that's not malfeasance, you see, ladies and gentlemen. Given that, I would suggest that uh, maybe... Uh, the Army might want to expand its, uh, or the military might want to expand its program and uh, have some training in core values for the Corps. All
3: around me are
4: familiar faces, worn out places, worn out faces, bright and early for their daily races, going. Going nowhere. Their tears are filling up their glasses. No expression, no expression. Hide my head, I wanna drown my sorrow.
3: No a brief segment wrong. in An Inconvenient Truth shows Senator Al Gore questioning James Hansen, a climatologist at NASA, during a 1989 hearing. But the movie doesn't give you much context or tell you what happened to Dr. Hansen later. And that's a story worth telling, for two reasons. It's a good illustration of the way interest groups can create the appearance of doubt, even when the facts are clear and cloud the reputations of people who should be regarded as heroes. And it's a warning for Mr. Gore and others who hope to turn global warming into a real political issue. You're going to have to get tougher because the other side doesn't play by any known rules. Dr. Hansen was one of the first climate scientists to say publicly that global warming was underway. In 1988, he made headlines with Senate testimony in which he declared that the greenhouse effect has been detected, and it is changing our climate now. When he testified again the following year, Officials in the first Bush administration altered his prepared statement to downplay the threat. Mr. Gore's movie shows the moment when the administration's tampering was revealed. In 1988, Dr. Hansen was well out in front of his scientific colleagues, but over the years that followed, he was vindicated by a growing body of evidence. By rights, Dr. Hansen should have been universally acclaimed for both his prescience and his courage. But soon after Dr. Hansen's 1988 testimony, energy companies began a campaign to create doubt about global warming, in spite of the increasingly overwhelming evidence. And in the late 1990s, climate skeptics began a smear campaign against Dr. Hansen himself. Leading the charge was Patrick Michaels, a professor at the University of Virginia, who had received substantial financial support from the energy industry. In Senate testimony, and then in numerous presentations, Dr. Michaels claimed that the actual pace of global warming was falling far short of Dr. Hansen's predictions. As evidence, he presented a chart, supposedly taken from a 1988 paper written by Dr. Hansen and others, which showed a curve of rising temperatures considerably steeper than the trend that has actually taken place. In fact, the chart Dr. Michaels showed was a fraud. That is, it wasn't what Dr. Hansen actually predicted. The original paper showed a range of possibilities, and the actual rise in temperature has fallen squarely in the middle of that range. So how did Dr. Michaels make it seem as if Dr. Hansen's prediction was wildly off? Why, he erased all the lower curves, leaving only the curve that the original paper described as being on the high side of reality. The experts at www.realclimate.org, the go-to site for climate science, suggest that the smears against Dr. Hansen might be viewed by some as a positive sign, indicative of just how intellectually bankrupt the contrarian movement has become. But I think they're misreading the situation. In fact, the smears have been around for a long time, and Dr. Hansen's been trying to correct the record for years. Yet, the claim that Dr. Hansen vastly over-predicted global warming has remained in circulation and has become a staple of climate change skeptics, from Michael Crichton to Robert Novak. There's a concise way to describe what happened to Dr. Hansen. He was swift-boated. John Kerry, a genuine war hero, didn't realize that he could successfully be portrayed as a coward. And it seems to me that Dr. Hansen, whose predictions about global warming have proved remarkably accurate, didn't believe that he could successfully be portrayed as an unreliable exaggerator. His first response to Dr. Michaels in January 1999 was astonishingly diffident. He pointed out that Dr. Michaels misrepresented his work. But rather than denouncing the fraud involved, he offered a rather plaintive appeal for better behavior. Even now Dr Hansen seems reluctant to say the obvious. Is this treading close to scientific fraud? He recently asked about Dr Michaels's smear. The answer is no. It isn't treading close. It's fraud, pure and simple.
4: I saw a How could you be so careful?
5: There's a new report out on the hurricane readiness of New Orleans, which it turns out is largely an unfulfilled promise. That report is called Storm Cloud Over New Orleans. It is out from the Institute for Southern Studies. And I'm talking to Sue Sturgis, who is the editorial coordinator for Gulf Coast Reconstruction Watch. Sue, thank you for joining us on Mother Jones. Thank you so much for having me. There are a lot of awfully startling numbers in here, but let's let's get an overview first. Essentially, we are now into hurricane season.
1: That's right.
5: Hurricanes are graded on a scale of one through five, depending on increasing severity, and at this point, with hurricane season underway, we're supposed to at least be ready for a Cat 3, and your report from top to bottom says that New Orleans and its surrounding area are nowhere near that.
1: That's correct, yes. Um, We're expecting another very active hurricane season this year, not quite as active as last year, um, but they're still expecting about 13 to 16 named storms, 8 to 10 hurricanes, and 4 to 6 major hurricanes. And the um, statistic that we have in the report is that the probability that at least one major hurricane will hit the U.S. Gulf Coast this year, and this is according to scientists at the University of Colorado, that probability is 47%. So this is a very serious possibility, and unfortunately the city is not at this time prepared to uh, face that sort of storm from an infrastructure perspective. Well,
5: even people who followed only with passing interest what was going on in New Orleans heard the levees, the levees, the levees, the levees. Tell me what's going on with the reconstruction of the levees, where we should be and where we are.
1: Well, um, after Katrina hit the city, they, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, which is the federal agency that bears primary responsibility for the building and maintenance of the um, flood walls and the levees in the city, uh, launched an $800 million dollar project to repair the faulty levees and flood walls and uh, as of today there's about 81 percent of the scheduled repair work that has been completed so there's still a chunk that isn't yet finished they're expecting the remainder of that work to be finished by the middle of july but the problem is that they're only repairing those structures to the same level of protection that the city had before hurricane katrina and so there's a concern that um, what we're, we're facing right now is the possibility of intensified uh, hurricanes because of global warming and uh, also just simply because we seem to be in a cycle right now where those storms are intensifying. So the concern is what happens if we have another very strong category three or god forbid a category four or five storm hit the city. We're not at all ready to, to face that.
5: Well there are also issues with the logistics of how the flood walls and levees are being fixed. You, you talk in the report about in the lower ninth ward what happens with that eastern wall rebuilt and esen- essentially what could happen in a worst case scenario is that one section wouldn't flood but another would because of the logistics of how they have it set up.
1: Yeah that's true. What had happened in that area is that um... Uh, The Corps has built about 4,000 feet of new levee um, and strengthened the flood walls in the areas that um, affected the Lower Ninth Ward, which as we all know from the images we saw was so hard hit by the hurricane. Um, But the problem is that the rebuilt eastern wall of the Industrial Canal, um, and that was the structure whose breach inundated that area, is now higher than the old wall on the canal's west side. So if there's a major storm that comes through that area, there's a possibility that the western side would overflow first and it would send the floodwaters back into the city again. Why?
5: Why did they do that?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, an interesting report came out last week, which was the Corps' own analysis of what went wrong before Katrina hit. Why did those structures fail? And one of the things that they found in their report is that, um, you know, the problem is the piecemeal approach that we're taking to, to um, protecting cities in the case of hurricanes. They have a, a situation where they're, you know, trying to repair a piece at a time, and they're not doing a systemic repair. And, you know, part of the problem is that it, it's enormously expensive to take a systemic approach, so they haven't been able to do that. So we're left with a piecemeal system where there are vulnerabilities that remain leave the city um, at risk.
5: I'm talking to Sue Sturgis, who authored a report for the Institute for Southern Studies called Storm Cloud Over New Orleans. You can read the entire report and follow Reconstruction Watch at reconstruction.org watch.org. The institute is southernstudies.org. Now, one thing we picked up in the news over the last week or so is that New Orleans is our own little Venice. It's sinking, and it's sinking more rapidly than we initially thought it was.
1: That's true, and one of the great ironies is part of the reason the city is sinking is because of the um, levees and flood walls that have been built in the city. What happened uh, back in the day before we had those structures in place was, you know, the Mississippi would periodically flood, and it would renew the land by bringing in silt. But now we've created these structures that prevent that from happening. So you have a a gradual erosion of the city and it's sinking further. It's already below sea level, but it's sinking further and further below sea level.
5: If there's one thing in your report that I find utterly beyond belief, it's where you talk about the pumping stations and the fact that there are 22 draining pumpage stations throughout New Orleans, some of them burned out Post-Katrina, they burned out just in the lightest little rainstorm.
1: Yeah, that was back in April. Mm-hmm.
5: And aside from the Army Corps repairing those three mortars, the rest of the contract for the pump work hadn't even been put out to bid as of last April. What is the big hold up there?
1: Uh, I can't tell you exactly what the big hold-up is it seems to be that you know the major priority after Katrina was to get those levees and flood walls fixed and the pumping stations didn't receive a great deal of attention what happened is when the city flooded um, these 22 massive drainage pumping stations were essentially marinated in brackish water and so there was a lot of corrosion of the pumps And uh, there was never any effort put in place to go out and systematically test all those pumps and make sure that they were working. Um, Right after Katrina, there was actually a drought in the city, so the conditions were quite dry. But this spring, when they started to get hit with rainstorms again, um, these were relatively light rainstorms. In April, three of the pumps burned out during one light rainstorm, and uh, two other pumps had burned out earlier in another light rainstorm. So out of 22 pumps, we had five failures, but yet the others haven't been tested yet. So there's a concern that um, when the city's hit by serious rain and should there be any more flooding, we could also see um, failures in the pumping stations.
5: We have just over a minute here, Sue Sturgis, and I want to acquaint people with something that you may have never heard about, what you refer to as the hurricane superhighway that leaves so much vulnerability in this area. Why is it there and how to get rid of it?
1: The Hurricane Superhighway is uh, what uh, local folks also refer to as Mr. Go, and that stands for the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, and this was a structure that was built by the Army Corps of Engineers back in the 1960s, and it provides an alternate shipping route um, to the port of New Orleans from the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, so this was built essentially as a commercial project. But nowadays, it's become so silted up, it's virtually unusable, but yet it sits there, and at the same time, it's turned into quite an environmental disaster. First of all, the structure has destroyed about 20,000 acres of wetlands, Um, and as you know from reading the report, wetlands play a really important function in reducing storm surge and acting as a sort of natural speed bump for hurricanes. So Mr. Go is destroying the wetlands. At the same time, it's also acting as a conduit, essentially helping the storms out in the Gulf of Mexico sweep into the city. And models that were run after Hurricane Katrina estimated that Mr. Go increased the surge into the city by two feet.
5: And there is, I, I need to wrap this for us here, there is a, a plotting effort to deal with shutting down Mr. Go, and I urge people to read up on that at reconstructionwatch.org. Sue Sturgis, I thank you so much. Thank you so much. Sue Sturgis is the author of Storm Cloud Over New Orleans. She is a former staff writer for the Rally News and Observer and the Durham-based Independent Weekly.
2: Gentlemen, let's get scared. Greenhouse gases are known to spur global warming. Scientists said this week that global warming spurs greenhouse gas emissions. Get a little feedback loop thing going? Gets nice and toasty. Earth could get hotter faster than current climate models predict because they're so linear, don't you know? Two scientific teams, one in Europe, and another in California, have reached the same basic conclusion. When Earth has warmed up in the past due to the sun's natural cycles, more greenhouse gases have been emitted into the atmosphere. As greenhouse gas levels rose, so did Earth's temperature, the scientists reported. You see how it works? It's like a, a mirror game. In improv world, Earth has not endlessly warmed up, though, because these natural solar cycles ended, letting the planet cool down and prompting a corresponding drop in greenhouse gas emissions. But these previous periods of heating and cooling were not influenced by the burning of fossil fuels and the current resulting trend toward higher global average temperatures, according to Margaret Torn of uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. It means the warming is happening faster. Each decade is actually warming faster than it would have. Torn said. It's the pace of change that will be one of the big problems. It's how humans adapt and the cost that will depend on the rate of change of climate. So we're, uh, we're guinea pigs for ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. You know, and who better? Who better to be guinea pigs for ourselves than us?
5: Reporter Nick Miroff noticed an unusual classified ad on a New Orleans website a few months ago. It offered free pickup, tuning, and repair for pianos that had been damaged by the wind and water of Hurricane Katrina. The man who wrote the ad is named Peter Spring. Nick tracked him down and brought back this story about grieving fathers, loss, and the restorative power of music.
0: This will be the crucial telling... I'm gonna guess, this is the water level right there. That's definitely rust, even though these are copper. A lot of them are still loose and playing. So the action, the machine parts of it, might be okay. Although there's mold. Well, my name is Peter Spring, and I came down here from Southern Oregon when I saw on the news what was happening, uh, I just wanted to do something. I figured, hey, a lot of people can't do this, but I can. I can pick up my tools, I can take my trailer, go down there and just help out. Moving pianos, fixing them, tuning them. You can hear the wah, 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 wah. I collected about 45 musical instruments to bring down and give out to musicians who lost theirs to try and help the city recover through music. Because four years ago, my son, who was a tremendous bass player, uh, died of cancer. And uh, so I've been dealing with loss now for four years. doesn't look cracked. sounds good. Feels good. One way or another, I'm going to get some use out of this, some good out of it.
5: I cannot believe this. I cannot. I really am just, like, shocked. Somebody calls you up. I'm in the middle of boxes up to my nose, and somebody calls you up and says, Would you like to have a piano? <laughs> my name is Barbara Lane. Um, I play at the La Pavilion Hotel, um, usually at six nights a week from... Uh, uh, 5 in the afternoon until 11 o'clock at night, And uh, I've had a pretty, pretty long streak of, of rough luck in the last six months. I lost my father. I flipped my car. I had this wreck and the Katrina and Wilma and Rita, but I can play. I can sing. I fell on my head, but I'm okay. I can still, you know, remember a few lyrics. <laughs> Thank you. You're
0: welcome. <laughs> well, I'm a third responder. I'm not interested in danger. It's not my thing. I'm not here to clean up. You know, I'm here for morale. And one of the first guys that I gave a a good instrument to needed an alto
6: sax, so I called him up and said, I got an alto sax for you. My name is Anthony Durandum, and uh, I've been doing electrical work uh, about 27 years now. Been playing music about 45 years. Easy. I live in the night ward, the lower night ward, One of the sections that was hit the hardest. Uh, Words could not describe the devastation that's down there. You know, I still have yet to get into my house because there's so much debris that's washed into my house.
0: When he first got to play an alto after losing his in the storm, he went out to the park and played for six hours. It was just.
6: We met. He had two saxophones. He gave me my choice. And uh, from him, I went straight to the park. And I would dial various friends. And as soon as they would say hello, I would start belonging. <laughs> Whatever. And then, you know, just telling them, hey, I finally got a horn. I have a horn. Is it your horn? Don't worry about it. I have a horn. And I just blew and blew, and I just couldn't stop blowing. I mean, I called people, California, New York, D.C., New Orleans, Birmingham. I was just calling all over the country people that I knew to celebrate my joy. So he told all the rest of the guys in his band
0: that there was this guy from Oregon bringing down instruments and giving away to musicians, and they should give me a call.
6: Well, believe it or not, the music has brought some constants And also it's settling. Because I was at a I'm still sorta at a standstill as to what's next, what to do next. The family looks at me in the same question. What next, Dad? What next, husband? You know, and you know only time can tell. I really don't know.
0: I'm putting this piano back together now. I tuned it up yesterday and and uh Now we get to take it out to Laplace and help fulfill one of the last wishes of a seven-year-old's mother. I was delivering a washer and dryer for some upstairs neighbors, so I was pulled up in my little trailer, you know. I met him, moving somebody, washing, dryer. I gave him a hand. I told him I had this piano business, and he said, you know anybody who teaches piano? And that I don't really know, because I'm really new here. And that's when I found out when we went to talking, he
7: offered to give me a whole piano. He offered this. He didn't
0: ask me for nothing, you know. He said, well, my seven-year-old son, uh, my wife died two years ago, and one of her last and deepest wishes was that he would play the piano if he wants to. And those were the key words, if he wants to. Somebody giving me something I never met,
7: never knew, and that's a man that people got to love, you know. That's a man with a heart. My name is Glenn Benoit, born and raised in New Orleans, born of Catholic religion. Right now, I'm disability retired because I, I got a bad heart. And my main thing right now is my son because my wife deceased and my responsibility is for him to become a stronger man in his life before I to leave because my wife had a good heart. It's just go to show you how the way world is. My wife was a lot to me. I know. He, I know his child a lot. So, a parent that lose a child before himself, you never know. But look at the spirit of that man. That man still laugh. He's still excited about life. Now he ain't been through the tragedy that New Orleans people been through. Cause you got a lot of people that's hurting
0: here. It does help. When people here find out about the depth and the the quality of my loss, it helps them understand and believe that I'm not here to take anything from them, to get anything from them. I came down because I know about loss. (laughs) Alrighty <laughs> ready just take it on down. You got the whole set setup here. Oh yeah, man, this is what yeah. I do. Well,
3: now we're just going to have to
0: pick it up on the back two wheels. I'm going to get it. No, no, don't even let li- don't lift. Just, just let it roll. Oh, it'll look nice in here too. So, and it's it's even a short one, oh, yeah. so it's just right for a child. It's more no easier for the to on this. Yeah, and the, the bench that goes with us is a little bit shorter, yeah. too, so it'll be easier for him to reach the pedals. He uh, tried to
7: put out of the Got a
0: book right there used to try. My son, Stephen, uh, was born in 79. I see trees. The first time that he had cancer was 13. He, he knew he was on serious, borrowed time. So he uh, he burned hard and fast. What a world. <laughs> Tower of Power is a, an Oakland, California-based soul band. Anyway, uh, on a way to uh... Uh, cancer treatment up in Portland they were given a free concert we went to, to see them and, and through that experience of watching Steven, who knew every one of their tunes the instant they started it I, I asked if he could meet them and, and the upshot of that came that they gave us all expenses paid trip out to Maui to hang with them for five days which ended up with him closing the show at this Cancer Society benefit and knocking their socks off they gave him a big fat bass solo in the middle of it and invited him to sit in with them at the Fillmore for Christmas and at Harrah's in Reno for New Year's. And uh, he couldn't do it because he couldn't take the travel. And, uh... After he passed, um, I called the guys in the band to tell them And they had been talking about him that day because they'd had a guy in that day doing an audition who uh, had played all the right notes, and he was perfectly adequate, but that's all. That wasn't good enough. And they were trying to put their fingers on it, on what was missing. And finally one of the guys said, (sighs) We need somebody who can play like Stephen. Uh, the leader of the band told me that if he'd been available he probably would have had the job that's how good he was
4: It's amazing how you love me. Burst against you. and all, In all sense, tenderness comes from pain, it's a game